Welcome to episode 120 of the Rocks Back Pages Jesus podcast. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm back in our Hammersmith recording suite with my co-host Mark Pringle. Hi Barney. Jasper Muris and Bowie. Hello Barney. And today we are delighted to welcome our guest, the new statesman's Kate Mossman. Hi Kate. Hello, it's very nice to be here and look at all the archives and the folders. And the... Oh good. Yeah, <laughs> nice stuff. Good, brilliant. <laughs> Katie's one of the best British writers on music, and in this episode, we are going to talk with her about Joni Mitchell, The Smiths, a Lou Reed interview from 1989, and who knows what else. Kate, was there a record or a pivotal moment in your early life that made you fall in love with music? Well, weirdly enough, I think it was probably the chicken song from Spitting Image. <laughs> so, if I'm thinking about the first record I ever bought, I do remember my dad, you know, I was five, holding my hand and taking me up to Muswell Hill Broadway, and I did pass a £5 note over and I bought that record. So that was my first. I, I'm afraid that that was, that was my entrance to music. <laughs> and then I wanted that generation that had this incredible experience of being brought up on Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and Harry Nilsson and all that kind of lot. So all the things that, you know, you then discover as an adult were rather good in, in the era before you existed. We were played when we were about five or six. So. Were you, so were you of the first generation who had, like, cool parents with cool records? I think so. I okay. think there's loads of people who first discovered, say, Mitchell in about 1986. Because I feel like records hung around longer then. Yes. I don't know if they did, but it's my, my... I mean, my mum went out and bought it new in 1986 and bought it at home in, in vinyl and stuff, and it had already been out for years by that point, like 15 years. So what was going on there? I don't know. I mean, would you... It's interesting to think... I mean, would, did you listen to, like, Blue and Ladies of the Canyon then, or did you also listen to Joni's, like, new records, her contemporary records? We had Dog Eat Dog. Yeah, Dog um, Eat Dog. So they all kind of merged. And I think the stuff that stands out to you when you're... I'm quite interested in how small children listen to music, because everyone thinks it's just teenagers. But I think it really enters your consciousness at about five or six, doesn't it? That's when mm. you first get a relationship with it. And... I think you sort of look for the larger than life things. We like the fact that there was a song called Shiny Toys. Yes. You know, because that appeals to a six-year-old or something. So you, you create these kind of colours and images in your mind which don't have anything to do with, like, the real real biography behind the tracks or the or the artist. And it was sort of a dream world. We were obsessed with the Beatles when we were about four and six and we just used to pretend to be them. So I think that's where the obsession started if I were to be on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think it's a, a really good point. And this is an experience completely outside of our experiences. So, I mean... We grew up with square parents who probably actively disliked music full stop, let alone pop music. My parents did have some pop records. Uh, they were just hippie enough to feel like they should own, you know, Sgt Pepper and then Bridge Over Troubled Water. Thing. I mean, I don't know how they came to choose those records. Yeah. And they had this Nina Simone record. Ah, yeah. So I was listening to Nina Simone when I was like you know, eight or nine. So mm. I thank them for that, even though I don't really know how they came by. Yeah, I, just had, <laughs> I just had Burr Lives and the Big Rock Candy Mountain. <laughs> it's funny because I had but the same experience. I bought my first album that I bought when I was like five or six was the Beatles' Yellow Submarine because like, yeah, exactly. it's, it looks like a kid's album. But Cartoons, thankfully, yeah. Thankfully it wasn't. So mm. It was actually. Well, it was, but it wasn't. You know, it, wasn't it wasn't kids' music, which I think my parents were quite glad about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jumping forward, can you remember your first impulse to write about music or kind of articulate? Yeah, it was music? very clearly. I, was, I became, I and mean, it was like a series of obsessions. There haven't been that many. Actually, I've got very limited taste. Um, I got obsessed with Glenn Campbell. 
Um, That's weird. I don't know how it happened. I think we were at university. Someone had a, a, a compilation called Music to Watch Girls By. <laughs> and um, it had, like, When the Moon Hits Your Eye on it. And it also had Witch to Alignment. And I, I thought, what the hell is this? This is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Sort of everyone on my, my corridor became... They knew that Kate was obsessed with this song, etc., etc. And then fast forward five or six years, I, I saw that he was actually doing a gig in Malibu with Jimmy Webb. In a tiny, tiny exclusive little theatre. And I was working in a, a children's charity at that point and I just decided to save up. I, I rang up and I booked A15, which is like the front seat in the middle the middle of the front row underneath Glen Campbell, basically, in this theatre. None of the other tickets had sold. In Malibu? In Malibu, from, from England, on my little landline. And I just thought I've got to save up the money to get there. And so I went over and... Um, and did that, and someone wow. just said you should you should write about it because it's it's mad. Like you know, he wasn't he hadn't been rehabilitated. How right. old were you then? Twenty six. Okay. So he was still kind of seen as a he'd spent a long time in Vegas. You know, he was a Vegas turn. He was country pop crossover. He wasn't a kind of you know hewn from rock like no. Johnny Cash or something. So um, <laughs> <laughs> he is now. Yeah, because Johnny was hewn from rock. <laughs> definitely. I interviewed him, and he, he, he was really, he made really of was hewn. <laughs> <laughs> So that was yeah. I remember sitting down in the diner the next morning and just writing some thoughts, and then and then sending it to five different magazines in the days that you could go in and buy magazines. Yeah. And um, it got published in Rock and Reel. Rock and Reel, which is the Radio Two publication. Yeah, it, well, it's, it's it? the one. It? Um, yeah. It's a, a folk folk and roots magazine. It's been going for years and years, and a lovely Sean McGee edits it. Okay. And he, I had this kind of very unrealistic experience that they didn't change a word of this piece. <laughs> I thought, like, what? This isn't, like, Almost Famous, where you get 900 words like backstage. This was actually a, a feature that they just ran. And, and obviously it gave me a very false sense of what <laughs> yes, music no was. No one will let it edit me again. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you yeah. don't touch my words. Yes. And so that was, like, I thought, oh, God, Great. that's actually a job. That's, that's surprising. Um, oh, lovely. We had, just... we had Dylan Jones on podcast talking about Jimmy and Glenn. Yeah. Was, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So life before the word, because yeah. I mean that's where most of us first read you in the word. Did you write a lot much before? It was only a six month period. It was very okay. weird, um, and I was already writing. I think my second piece was for the word. So it is a similar story. Mark Ellen picked the phone up, and most people didn't. Yes. And I was going off to Telluride to, to cover a bluegrass festival, just again, off my own bat. I wasn't, I was just going. I just thought it'd be interesting. And and he said, OK. And it did feel a bit like almost famous then, because he said, if you can get me 600 words, but without pictures, there's no story. And I didn't know how to get pictures. I didn't know what, right. you know. So I went over there and, and I tracked down a snapper on the site and managed to do it. And I, I thought again, and I was just very lucky that Jude Rogers happened to, to leave to be a columnist and be a freelancer and I applied for the job of reviews editor and then I was in so I was, I was extremely lucky with the whole thing really. yeah fantastic <laughs> and I mean I learned so much from Mark when I when I was on stuff at Mojo and I assume you learned a great deal from Mark and Dave and the whole word crew yeah I mean literally just I think the the humor was the main thing I, I don't <laughs> yes. remember getting any work done in the office <laughs> I'm no. thankful it was a monthly. Yeah, we don't get any work done in this office. <laughs> it was just laughing all day, and um, but sort of a lot of a lot of 
things that came from Mark about, you know, looking at the psychology of rock musicians, looking at uh, rock musicians who've lost a parent young and then yeah. why that might drive them into yeah. being famous in a way that coming from a more you know, secure background maybe wouldn't and stuff. And he looks at things in a, an unusual sort of almost psychoanalytical way. Yes. And, and the impulses behind fame and why, why people would chase it. And so I feel that now in, in, in what I do, that, that that way of looking at things seemed very different from, you know, listing off someone's last five albums and talking about maybe style in a certain way or something or, or, or trying to be cool. They weren't cool. <laughs> and no. I was not cool, so... Yeah, well, that that makes total sense, um, and we've got quite a few of your wonderful word pieces on on the site. And you also, at a certain point, started doing broadcasting. Mm. You made made some great BBC radio documentaries, including one that brought you into our old offices, yeah. which were not as well appointed as these. Um, rather more chaotic, I think, which we could say. But you were researching. I don't know how, whether I was away at the time, mm. but I don't. I wasn't there. And, no, no. But I think you were researching female pop writers from the sixties and, and I guess seventies as well. One of my favourite subjects. Yeah, which is yeah. Not one of my yeah, marks mastermind subject clutch of amazing writers well I I mean you know I I get into kind of grief on Facebook particularly where people sort of say rock music journalism started in 1967 and it didn't Mm. you know and and just recently we we got Maureen Cleave on board she died sadly what a couple of months ago or so Mm. three months ago maybe but only just recently have have I had access to even standard stuff and this is like 1963, 64, Mm. 65 it's fantastic writing yeah it is really really you know I mean it's every bit as good as anything that's published in Rolling Stone or any of those sorts of magazines from from 67 onwards and so I get a bit cross about this idea that it's it's all about American blokes in 1967 you know I'm just like grinding my teeth and snarling there's incredible clarity in what they were writing because they were often we were discussing at the time weren't we they were were given these stories as kind of a frivolous pieces it's like the fashion pages and what they were actually doing was then following the Beatles around for an entire day but there were new quite yet Uh, what that meant I I, I keep quoting on this podcast but we got a Dawn James interview with Eric Clapton just after he had left the Yardbirds before he joined and and she gets a real sense of what a depressive he is and this isn't a girl's teen magazine you know it's just fantastic does he talk about Covid in it Uh, no but if you had a chance (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'd have said no vaccines for me (laughs) After the word, I mean, pretty as far as I can tell, because I looked at the list of your pieces and you, the word obviously came to an end. Yeah. And you seemed to start writing The New Statesman almost immediately after that. I don't know, was there any overlap? I was, I was kind of the, the pop critic at The New Statesman yes. already, and on a kind of you freelance already, basis, okay. yeah, which, sure. was, which was a very, you know... I, had, I was the pop critic. Were you? I didn't know yeah. that. I was bequeathed it by Mary Harron, yeah. to whom Simon Frith had bequeathed it. And uh, wow. so, yes, it's Under a what editor long and illustrious line. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> I do say Everybody's so worked at The New Statesman. This is everyone's been there. It's a long time Michael Hans worked at The New Statesman. I, I, mean, I know I don't look it, but I'm very old. It's a long <laughs> time ago. Right. Anyway, so you were the pop critic, mm. and now, but now you're an editor at large. No, now no, I'm, the, I, I'm the senior writer there. So um, it's kind of it's an interesting. It was an interesting place to work at the time as well because I had come from obviously a very a great place to work, but I wouldn't have been. And this is no offence to Mark or Dave, I wouldn't have been given Neil Young to interview because there was always the yes. feeling that. 
someone else might know more about Neil Young because they were right. the same age as Neil Young and they'd heard all his records. And <laughs> so and it sounds kind of unfair because obviously they did encourage me to write about lots of different things. But when it came to the big the cover features and the longer features that uh, were about the kind of, you know, uh, the men in the pantheon the, of rock. The, yes, it the, the ones been, hewn from rock. The one hewn, hewn yes. from rock. <laughs> um, whereas you go, go to the NS, which is politics magazine, obviously yeah, yeah. illustrious literary section as well, and they go, well, oh, you know, please write about, please go and interview Peter Gabriel, please go and interview Brian Eno and stuff. And and so it was the first time I could really stretch out at that length, which yeah. has sort of developed now to being, I suppose, chief profile writer there, which is not just music anymore, but... Um, exactly, exactly. Politicians now and stuff like that. And I, I know, well, one of the pieces we're going to feature on the homepage is, is, is this lovely piece you wrote about Chick Career and, and more broadly about jazz fusion. And Jasper's particularly keen because it's, it is really lovely. Never, is and so I'll hand over to, to Yeah, I just JMB. thought it was really nice. I mean, because you, you start off kind of saying, as a music critic, you spend a lot of time trying to find stuff to say about albums you wouldn't choose to listen to and little time writing about the music you really love. Yeah. If you love jazz fusion, you're pretty much guaranteed <laughs> never to write about it at all. <laughs> but then, of course, you did find a way to write about it. She commissioned herself. Yeah. <laughs> the words <laughs> flew. Yeah, but it's great. You know, it's the most unfashionable genre ever invented and invites a disproportionate amount of disdain. I used to feel sad about this until I realised it meant that jazz fusion would never become my work, only ever my private pleasure. I mean, can you tell us a bit about what jazz fusion means to you? <laughs> yes. I just found, like, well, it's, as we were saying just before, it's a, it's a very broad church, isn't it? So some yeah. of it is... Um, is oily and tasteless. <laughs> yeah. I'm, not say, like, banky. I'm not going to say it's like people banking on stage. And stuff. Yeah. It's not, I just don't like that comparison. I think it's really silly. I think that the misconception about jazz fusion or the problem with it being written about is that in order to write about it, you have to know what they're doing on stage mm. and you have to be able to play like that in order to explain what they're doing. <laughs> so it becomes, it's this strange, it's a language that, most people can't speak. And if you enjoy watching people speak a language that you can't speak, you like jazz fusion. Yeah. If you're maybe a sort of a different kind of journalist who wants to be able to tie things up neatly and explain exactly what's going on the stage, then it's very hard to write about it. And that's why people use words like noodling. <laughs> yes. It's a bit lazy. It is lazy, isn't it? There's also yeah, that suspicion also, of technique. Yeah. And, uh, yes. But I mean, you know, but that also comes out of that particular period because yes. say, when punk happened, there's a kind of overall rejection of prog, virtuosity. of any of virtuosity, any display yeah. of you know, te- technical ability. But mm. I do think that, that what's often missed by that analysis and something you say as well is that there is actually, there can be, if it's really good jazz fusion, there can be a physical thrill about the thing that's happening. It's not necessarily inaccessible by virtue of being complicated it can be mm. exciting because it's so bombastic for 10 yes. minutes until you realize well, how, how very not... very wrong you're being <laughs> <laughs> we, both, we, we both like some of weather no, report no, well, I mean, my, first, yeah. my first introduction was my vision orchestra when they yes. first appeared 72 73 yeah. in the 19 flame yeah. and, and being a, a, into guitar players i thought god this is fantastic <laughs> For about 10 minutes, I bought the first two albums and somehow, like, two months into listening to Birds of Fire, it's like, it dawned on me that this is the biggest pile of shit I've ever seen. That stuff makes my hair stand on end. Like, um, <laughs> Joe the Unknown Dissident. No, I don't. <laughs> and it's so... M- McLaughlin is so melodic. Thank you. 
and it's just like it just gets you somewhere and then at the end of the unknown distant which i think is a it's obviously a kind of anti-war song there's mm. this gunshot at the end and it's just like the eeriest thing this really loud gunshot breaks through the record and then there's dance of the maya which is you know crazy time signatures you just feel like you're being thrown around in a washing machine <laughs> but it's, like, it's like a monster playing or something Kate, just, Kate, Kate is got, she looks, yeah. she's going to a kind of trance it's really exciting <laughs> yeah. done some really great stuff I mean the album that he did and they did a bunch of concerts with a, a Japanese pianist called Hiromi, and it's just two pianos. Yeah. And so it dispenses with the kind of electronic, you know, excess of a lot of that kind of music, and you just get these two incredible piano players just having at, in a kind of, like, postmodern dueling pianos kind of way. It's just, it's, I love yeah, that. And, and the other thing is, of course, you've got two ends of it. You've got the kind of the extreme technical end of it. You also got the funky end of it. I yeah. mean, you know, Billy Cobb's Spectrum. That's that album's fantastic. Yeah, and very, very funky indeed. Which of course I adore. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is. It's, it's it's a curious one because it emerged and then sort of took over for a while. Suddenly, everyone was releasing these records, and you got people like George Duke had been with Frank Zappa forever, suddenly mm. emerging doing sort of similar sort of stuff. And then it sort of it became sort of. But now it's, illegal, but now it's coming it? back again a bit. You know, bands like Snarky Puppy mm. and, and that sort of yeah. group. That can be stuff that's a lot of fun and can be good to see live if the sound is good. Because if yeah. the sound's not good, then it's just a rubbish tip of like stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think what well, like you were saying, what makes what made career unusual, and there are a few of them who could do that, is that you could play in about seven different styles, and yeah. you, you might go and just literally get bark. Yeah. One evening, and then you would go and get, you know, him sort of doing his Dalek machines and things. And <laughs> it's just that that's very hard to to really explain or or, or really emulate in any way. And, and I, I like musicians where they just play whatever is interesting and them at that moment. Yes, like, what sure. am I listening to? I'm listening to Spanish flamenco music, so yeah. I'm going to work that into my yeah. set. And it's like, I mean, that just blows my mind. Didn't you find all kind of the dodgy religion that sort of hung around this sort well, of? Well, you write about you mentioned science. There's always in, a dodgy in religion. <laughs> <laughs> Really you, you, you posit it as a sort of advantage because yeah. you see, you, you you you'd interviewed Beck's dad. Yeah, <laughs> Beck's dad. Who there's a um, an interview in one of the what's the famous magazine again? What Scientology, Scientology magazine? magazine. I, I don't subscribe. It's got a funny I'm name. <laughs> I can't remember its name. But yeah, there's an interview that uh, with him because he's very high up. I yes. think he's level six or something. <laughs> David Campbell is. Yeah, Lotus or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> He's actually ascended. And he said, he said it, it, it sort of breaks the same confidence that gives you to attack Hollywood as a young actor or whatever yeah, yeah. it is you use it for. Right. Uh, as a musician, he said that it, it made him confidently go from a classical training into rock or something right. like that. So you kind of you have those those boundaries set up by genre and someone who really believes in themselves really because <laughs> they're a Scientologist <laughs> can just like smash through the boundaries. So it's, it's fascinating because you know my job one of the most marvelous things is reading interviews with the various members of the Mahavushan Orchestra, the first one, after they broke up. And they're all scathing about John McLaughlin and his religion specifically. Yeah. Because he's always claiming that he was on a higher plane than the rest of the band and that they were, that they were just basically hopeless because they, didn't, they hadn't been elevated by... They weren't enlightened. Mm. Right. Into enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 by the end of it, people like Rick Laird and Billy Cobb just despised him for Yeah. Them. I love and they're all cold fish, aren't they, these guys? Like, <laughs> I'm not interested in them as people, which no. I kind of like as well. It kind no. of releases you but from the biography. John McLaughlin is interesting because he was a notoriously difficult man to work with. You know, that he can't really 
That's the thing. <laughs> and also, they need to be able to do that, do their craft. They yeah. need religion mm. to stop them going back onto booze and drugs because you can't play like that if I you're hungover. I, I, I prefer to be on booze and drugs. <laughs> the one who's not like that, who actually also mentioned the piece, is Jacob Collier, who's yeah. like, you know, this mad kid who like just does all this stuff and is totally bouncy and kind of... I've met yeah. him a couple of times. He's just, he's just so enthusiastic about the music. I want to love you. And he does seem to understand it on a slightly different level, but not in a kind of like inaccessible way. It's just mm. that because he's so enthusiastic, it just kind of brings everybody into that. Yes, I think you, yeah. You know, what's the trouble is watching it live, it could be so self indulgent live. I mean, I, I knew people who went to see Weather Report and said, 10 minutes into the Jacka Pastorius, both space early, and just wanted to die. <laughs> 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 There's no prospect of getting out of here. Yeah. Almost- <laughs> Talk of Jacko and, and Jazz Fusion in general is, is actually a perfect sort of segue into, you know, like a segue. But I, I, I want to talk here. about Joni Mitchell, um, mm. who obviously had her kind of phase, her sort of jazz yeah. fusion, fusion phase with Tom Scott and the LA Express. But the main piece that we're going to uh, feature by you on the homepage is this fantastic piece that, that you wrote quite recently about... Joni's, you know, like male muse, the, the extraordinary <laughs> Carrie Raditz, who inspired the song Carrie, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I so love this piece. I learned so much from it. <laughs> Tell us about, because you, I think you, you told us earlier you'd been trying to pin yeah. him down to be interviewed for a long time. You eventually, you eventually got him. I, I think it stood out when I was a kid. I, I, I was obsessed with that song. It was the, it was the song that made me happiest. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> from Blue and there yeah. were lots of songs that you know to my sort of emotionally immature mind sounded dark and sad and then there was this one that was just like <laughs> I'm sorry I mean, I've got to regress to being six unfortunately but there was this one that was just about ostensibly about this very old man with a cane <laughs> yeah, you saw it as yeah, a kind like of old like man a, in a bow tie a frame who almost. she's like dragging out to a right. cafe and getting pissed and breaking glasses with and stuff. And I yes. think we, I, I just was always, I don't know if I was intrigued as to who he was because I never thought about who any of those men were on Blue. And I was disappointed to learn as an adult that they were actually real people. I didn't want to know they were about Graham Nash and Leonard Cohen and stuff like that. Cause <laughs> I, they were, they kind of had more of a life in, in the song somehow. But um, I guess I'd been thinking about it for, for a few years and I decided to to try and find him. So there was the Wall Street Journal did a piece in 2014 when they interviewed him on the phone, I think, and her about that song. And so he gave some answers about, um, you know, his relationship with her, but very much in the terms of like, uh, it was her story. And he was, you know, it's a fleeting moment in their lives. And they were, it was very exciting while it lasted. And, and I thought there's more to it than this, because yeah. the, who is this guy? And I looked him up on Facebook, and he became um, a Park Avenue banker. Um, an investment strategist living in Maryland. And he kind of looked very cool on Facebook. He's quite good looking and had like three very good looking children. And I emailed him and he wrote back saying, well, thank you very much, but I'm, I'm working on my memoirs. <laughs> and um, I, don't, I don't want to do any interviews. And I think I tried two or three times. And then um, it was actually after the 50th anniversary of Blue that he wrote to me after and okay. said... Um, he said, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't do an interview. I'm before. ready to talk. <laughs> I'm ready to talk. Um, and the, unfortunately, the, the location turned out to be Paris, but it was going to be even better because he was supposed to be coming to High Wycombe 
<laughs> to see a friend. Oh no, I've got it wrong. Market Harborough. Market Harborough. <laughs> Never mind those two places are the same, but they're not at all. <laughs> it's going to be seeing a friend in Market Harborough. <laughs> so I was going to meet him at the pub on Halloween at Market Harborough. But actually, as it was, it was like a bistro in, on the left bank, so it was all rather more Much better. dramatic. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it is an ext- I mean, you said there must be more to this story, and there, there certainly was a lot more to this story. Yeah, wasn't I mean, I had an idea of what Kevin what did must you be think like from about the, him. It's yeah, kind of I mean, I sort of to... probably thought he was even older, actually. Yeah, um, you know, just one of those kind of aging hippies mm. falling in with the, this young crowd in Crete. You know, so I had a sort of, and I mean, the lyrics, you know, that rogue, that red, red rogue, and who did the goat dance very yeah. well? You see, this priapic. <laughs> satire yes, sort of figure <laughs> well in a way he was I suppose but what was amazing to me was to learn that he stayed in in Joni's life mm. long after she left Crete and in fact they're still friends yeah. but what I had never I had never known and I don't know that anyone knew that she had flown him to LA yeah, and and he was sort of like this kept man, kept man, for a bit. <laughs> yeah. and, and and I mean the, so the quotes from him about sort of feeling a bit I don't know whether he felt sort of a bit like a spare prick at a wedding when kind of Crosby, Stills and Nash would come round and Jackson Brown would come round. I mean, so did you know anything until he told you that? No, I mean, I I didn't have a clue. I I just thought uh, she dumps him in the song, doesn't she? Yes. The the song is a dumping song. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a love song. It's like, I'm leaving you, the very first line. Yeah, but by the way, way, can you come to our And she probably played it him first. She played it to him on his birthday, his 23rd birthday, so he wasn't an old man with a cane I thought, and yes, that was that was how she, he got he got the confirmation that she was leaving. But it was a short relationship. They lived in a cave, his cave, <laughs> as you do, in Matala or Matala, whatever you pronounce it, um, uh, for about two months. And it's in a way, it's kind of a very fascinating, but also very mundane story. And that, of course, didn't end there. She they used to talk on the phone a bit. I think from Athens, there was one phone. So you want those kind of details, don't you? Where the hell was the phone in, in, yes. in Crete? <laughs> And she, yeah, she sent for him. She sent him a first-class ticket. And there's so in his story, there's so much about him kind of joining, a, you know, working on a hop farm for a few months, and then then going to American Express to check his mail and finding that there's a message from Joni Mitchell saying, "Please meet me at the London Palladium at six thirty tomorrow night." And this wasn't this wasn't made up. This was true, you yeah. know. So she um she essentially got him to go live in LA with her. And it went disastrously wrong because he said he felt like a caged gorilla. Um, yes. And one day he remembered, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash literally turning up, sitting on the sofa opposite him while he was on the other side. And he was a big head at that point. I think he was very all over the place. He'd had lots of bad trips. Um, yes. And so th- there were sort of disastrous endings along the way, but they stayed friends all through his Park Avenue period and her doggy <laughs> dog period. period. <laughs> so I mean, that's like, surreal. They would go and have dim sum in the 80s in their, you know, big Amazing. jackets and stuff. Um, and it's really about the the way that, you maybe the way a famous person looks at relationships you know what what did he do for her he was basically like a bouncer in crete because she was being yeah. followed by fans everywhere and then when she got when he got back to la he was sort of a buffer between her and graham nash and <laughs> james taylor and stuff you know he's sort of like tough guy boyfriend keeping the the other guys at bay i don't know and this weird thing. period you mention in london when they're like a a, a sort of this platonic menage a trois yeah with james, james taylor. is now 
Joni's bow. But, yeah. But Carrie is sort of tagging along, and it and, and it's and it's all sort of somehow wrong. It's all okay, isn't it? It was. Very and they stay odd. in the Warner Brothers flat it in Knightsbridge. It sounds ghastly. I kept saying, can I even, this doesn't hang together. Like, what is this? And he's like, it, he said, well, you know, you, you need to corroborate these facts, so call James Taylor. He'll yes, call James, I call Joni, and they'll, they'll back me out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think the only explanation for the James Taylor period is that Taylor was obviously, you know, a, a wild man at that point, living... Well, living, an, an active heroin. An active heroin addict. Yeah. And, um, and that you know, late at night, he and he and Carrie would go off to bars together, and Joni didn't with them. Right. So I think that there was that kind of late night kind of force about him that people liked. And but he's a very strange. He's very cultured, and and very unusual. Kind of quite a temper on him, quite refined, strange character. Did you like him when you met him? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I found him. He was quite, I suppose he was quite nervous in a way, but mm-hmm. he, he told, his, the thing as a journalist that was unusual is his quotes, which put, like, I didn't have to edit him. Really? You, you know, usually <laughs> yeah, you're trying to make someone sound <laughs> better than they sounded. Yeah, yeah. They didn't, he's just like, bish, bash, but just talks in these kind of aphorisms. And um, I was quite cutting about her as well. <laughs> when talking about her jazz phase, he goes like, he said, um, I'm sure that in the great pantheon of jazz, there's an empty podium that she thinks her statue should be on. <laughs> <laughs> and and, I, and yet afterwards he sort of said, I think there are a few things in this that, you know, Joni, they will smart a bit. And then... Um, so take them out? No, 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 no just no. like... And I said, well, you did say that. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> but he called her afterwards and she's, she's read the piece and stuff like that and they, they didn't fall out. So. Yeah. <laughs> there was this moment of, oh, God. Was... I mean, clearly one of the things that she liked about him when she first walked into that cafe in 1969 was that he wasn't impressed by yeah her. i mean he knew she was but he's he, he says i didn't he said i didn't give a shit yeah. <laughs> you, know, I mean, you know i didn't give a shit about Joni mitchell there aren't many people that say that you know um, i think he actively disliked the whole concept of yes. Joni mitchell because it was like oh there's this celebrity in town did you know yes and and then he was cooking omelets so, i yeah. mean the songs are very literal everything yeah. that she says yes. <laughs> yes he did do the goat dance he did carry a cane. It was like a broken shepherd's crook. It wasn't a, a walking stick. But yeah, he, he just didn't like the fact that he was being told to be impressed by you know the rest of her entourage. Yeah. But I think fantastic. he got yeah, quite enough. close. Yeah. But it's a fantastic piece, a long <laughs> and engrossing piece. Oh, carry get out your cane. Put on some silk. Oh, you're a neat old daddy, but I like. Talk of Joni, I thought it'd be a, a suitable moment just to talk about the whole Spotify thing. It's kicked mm. off, obviously, initiated by by Neil Young. For anyone listening in five years' time, Neil Young <laughs> <laughs> de- demanded that all his, at least all his Warner Brothers music was taken off of Spotify yeah, uh, yeah. because of Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan was, if you're listening in five years' time. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know whether you have, you have any thoughts on this, Kate. Well, am I the only person who was, like, surprised and relieved that Neil Young wasn't an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, far from the only person who thought that. Because I thought he might be, you never well, know. He There's might so be anything. He'll, yeah. he'll, he'll go either. so many ghastly old rockers. Who turn and Joni, and yeah. Joni, who also took But of course, the, the thing know. that a lot of people point out is they both have polio. Yeah. Exactly, so they are yeah. not anti-vaxxers. They're not anti-vaxxers, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I sort of, I, I, I think it's a, a great shame. Um, I also wonder, 
it, it just seems like a, a sort of they've really looked at the figures. I think I had a look on Spotify and I think he's sort of 780th most listened to artist or something like that. And if if it would be an Ed Sheeran or Little Nas X oh, yeah. or or Dua Lipa or something who'd withdrawn, I'm sure the decision would have been very different. But they've they've gone. I mean, it spent a huge amount of money on getting Rogan, didn't they? Absolutely. And they've now gone. You know, they're, on, they're in Wall Street now, aren't they? They're in New York. Yes. Um, well, there was it. So Dorian Linsky, whom she you mm. know, uh, wrote a piece last week on on the Guardian about this debacle, and uh, he quotes a musician, Damon Krakowski. I'm not sure who he is, and you might know. Do you know Damon no, Krakowski? No. Uh, an American musician. So who's basically says Spotify are not in the music business anymore. Mm. They're a tech platform. And however they can get people to spend more time on the platform, that's where they'll go. Yeah. Spotify yeah. is not interested in the future of music. It's and, and I mean, maybe that's an over, an over analysis of this Neil Young, Joe Rogan thing. Mm. But I mean, clearly, the, they say they put their money where Joe yeah. Rogan is and not Neil Young, one of the major figures. Because if you're following a podcast, you, you tune in every week for it and you well, stay till day. the end. It's yeah. every day, yes. I think it's yeah. every day for like hours. Yeah. Right, and hours you listen and all the way through. Yeah. You're not just getting Harvest Moon. Well, the, Ro- the Rogan podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 11 million listeners. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying, really. I know, and I always thought of, ser- of, uh, of Spotify as being quite servile in the past. You know, like Adele yeah. says, please take the shuffle function off. And they're like, okay. <laughs> 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 yes. And then they're like, Taylor Swift said, oh, you're not paying me enough. Oh, well, what, what, anything you want, madam. Well, I, mean, yeah, I think Taylor Swift it took a little bit longer. It took a bit took longer. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> but, but, um, I mean, someone like Neil Young, I mean, he, he must earn virtually no money from Spotify. I think it's £780,000 a year, which sounds like a lot of money, but in the scheme of things. Yeah. Joe but, Rogan earns a lot more. And one of the really insidious things about the whole thing is that, you know, people are saying, well, all the smaller artists should band together and also all boycott Spotify. And not yeah, get but then they won't get any money. But then, no, they, they, they no won't money get any money all. of the very little they're getting already. And B, a lot of it is owned by the labels. And who owns part of Spotify? It's the labels. So. Yeah. The labels aren't going to take the stuff off Spotify if the label owns Spotify. That doesn't, you know, that's yes, obvious. Yeah. So it's it's really like, you know, the, the small bands are even more powerless than ever to even well, I, even, I, even take it off. And know, also, you know, it, could what, afford to. What is the issue with Spotify? I think for me, the issue is the way they pay. It's not that they don't pay. It's the fact that they pay to record companies in sort of fixed blocks of money according to overall percentage. I want my money... That that I pay for Spotify to go to the artists I listen to, mm. and that doesn't happen. No. It's, it's hard to believe. If they had told us this before they launched, that was how they're going to do it. I mean, Having said that, have any of us stopped listening to Spotify? Well, Although not. you don't feel you have a choice. You <laughs> don't really feel you have That's a choice. I mean, they are the, the they're the Amazon of, of yeah. music streaming. Well, people, and, and, people are looking at other things like Tidal and you know, Apple music. I still have Apple because I kind of feel like I bought it all originally. They must... You know, that weird thing. Was it somebody like Bruce Willis who realised that he was only renting his record collection that he got yes. for? And he yes. had a story about yes. it. Everyone was like, what? You know? yeah. Yeah. But I don't even feel like... I get pissed off with Spotify all the time because they don't even do that good a job. I mean, my daughter's nearly two. All she likes is nursery rhymes. And she asks for Polly Put the Kettle On. Mm-hmm. I ask Spotify and it plays me like a Swamp Rock version <laughs> by Kitty Daisy and Lewis. Probably because it's been streamed more... T- I don't and know. And you don't think your daughter's ready for Swamp Rock? That's <laughs> <laughs> really upset. Maybe Spotify is actually right about this one. <laughs> <laughs> about 
But no one else has left, have they? Which is weird. Well, no, no. So this is the lovely footnote I just checked today. To see, and guess who's guess who's got obligingly followed suit? Graham Nash. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yes, Ever loyal Joan. to Joan. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Joan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although probably not loyal to Neil. No. But if Joni's if Joni's oh. doing it, then I'd better do it. No, but in true. India, I, India areas also t- asked for her music to come off. But she but she she added that that was partly also because of I think she 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 refers to Joe Rogan's language around race. Okay. Right. We don't have time to talk about no. Joe yeah. Rogan. I've never listened to Joe no, Rogan. Neither. I mean, I feel like I hate him without <laughs> having to listen to him. So we'll, good enough. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder what Lou Reed have made of all this because I'd like to just talk a bit about Lou Reed. So the, the last of the pieces by you is this kind of non-obituary of Lou Reed that you wrote in 2013, <laughs> and you start off kind of saying most journalists are always, you know, ready to talk about someone who's just died, you know, and and no one wanted to talk about Lou. I mean, I don't know if that was true. It was true. Of, really, a bit. I'm talking about my office again at the time. Okay. Because you were at the Word. I was at the Word. Yes. And um, usually, you know, I remember when Captain Beefheart died, Mark stayed up all night writing, you know, the cover yeah. story was overhauled. And, <laughs> yes, like, yeah. Equivalent of chain smoking, but not probably eating toffees like <laughs> two in the morning. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was really interesting. No one wanted to write his obit and the, the phones were ringing all day. Uh, they wanted them on, you know, the world at one. People yeah. wanted the Times obit and stuff. Not the obit, you know, the appreciation. Yes, of course. Um, and everyone was saying you do it no you, you do, do it. it you do it and it's because no one liked him yeah. <laughs> and I just thought this is kind of interesting but what was what's funny is that you've unearthed this piece and actually I hadn't read that piece since the time because I felt so bad for writing that article <laughs> that it's become one of those things that you just bury and you think like hopefully no one will ever see that and what have well, we done well, that's what we're here that's for that's what we're okay. here for yeah basically yeah those, <laughs> those skeletons you truth. thought you'd buried <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're digging them up. You can run, but you can't hide. I re- okay. had to reread it, but I did it as something as a kind of young buck in a way that, like, I remember I just started at the New Statesman and I, I was sounding off about this, this thing that you know, no one actually liked him as a person. My editor was like, you have to write that. And he'd written the cover line before I'd written the article. And it's kind of funny looking back on it. But yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I think it's kind of amusing, but I, I don't know if I would say the same now. Well, you say, you say he could be one of the, one of the coldest, most humorless, arrogant and worst, boring characters <laughs> rock and roll has ever seen. His studied charmlessness was revolutionary. Absolutely brilliant. But as someone who interviewed Lou a couple of times and as someone who's talked to many journalists who who interviewed and suffered the experience yes. of, of interviewing Yes, do you recognise that? Oh, my God. I mean, he was <laughs> he was sadistic. Yeah. I mean, he really was. He really loved to torture interviews, particularly oh. British interviews. Really, yes. He, had a, he reserved a particular scorn for British why. interviews. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Because he we really, had a reputation really for us. kind of, uh, I mean, taking music maybe less, you know, writing more about character and being a bit tougher on people, didn't we, than American musicians who were like very, Mr. Reed says this. Yeah. Well, that's actually also that, that actually the British rock critics are generally much ruder than the Americans. I mean, yes. when Americans... Yeah. Like, if you read a, a, re- yeah. a bad review in Rolling Stone, it's usually a very tempered thing of, you know, it doesn't mm. quite work. You know? yes. if, it's in, if it's like... Unless it's by men, though. Like, he's saying, <laughs> he smells of piss. <laughs> 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 um, which yeah. I, I personally rather yeah. appreciate. You know? That's fantastic. <laughs> but, um, so the reason we're talking about Lou, and we'll mm. I'll hand over to Mark just a second to, to talk about the new audio, is that there's an exhibition that is going to open in New York, the New York Public Library, in almost exactly a month, which is basically... They, 
acquired his whole, all his archives mm. about five years ago, and so they're, they're, they're now they're putting on this exhibition of. I mean, there's 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 stuff. I think I don't know if there's video footage of him playing in his very first band in like 1958 but there's wow, some there's yeah. stuff from from then and and just everything covering his whole life and all his interests from you know speed to tai chi mm. um and it sounds like it's going to be very interesting i think you know laurie anderson has given it her, yeah. her blessing so we and then i saw you'd written this great great little piece so I think <laughs> let, we, we knew we had so I'm going to ask not to talk about the audio yeah well it's in 1989 it's, um, his album New York is just coming out um, and of course this is something that Barney you'll recognise is he spends the first 15 minutes basically talking about guitars and amplifiers which was his technique <laughs> yes. wasn't it that yeah was he did what, that, that to me that was what he'd do to, to all the interviews ah um, interesting yeah which uh, as a guitar player I found quite I'm just going to interject here because my experience was is I woke up in a New York hotel room having been sent over there by by Mark Ellen to interview <laughs> Lou and I, and I opened the new edition of Vanity Fair and it was the Proust quest questionnaire with Lou Reed what is your worst nightmare being interviewed by a British journalist <laughs> That was the start of my day. That's fantastic. And I thought, oh, my God. And I called David Frick of Rolling Stone because I knew that David and Lou got on and Lou sort of trusted them. And I said, David, what do I do? What, how, Practice how your am Australian I get... accent. <laughs> how am I going to get this, this yeah, yeah. get a good interview with you? And he said, OK, here's, here's the thing. He, the, the way he'll test you is he will talk about amplifiers. <laughs> And, you know, valves and... Ch I mean, he'll just... Just it. allow him to do it. Don't get impatient. Eventually, he will run out of things yeah. to say. And, and then you can start asking him about rock and roll animals. Had he used your time up, though, in doing well, that? No, fortunately not. Well, but I could see he just literally... He was trying to think of something else to say about Fernando Saunders' bass That's brilliant. Play. So you never cut in. No, and then was he was just exhausted. Yes. And, and I said, OK, can we talk about yeah. heroin and walk on the wild side? Yeah. It's all all right. <laughs> Yeah,ちょっとさ、マーフィンハスンとは、ちょっとさ、マーフィンハスンとは、ちょっとさ、マーフィンハスンとは、ちょっとさ、マーフィンハスンとは、ちょっとさ、マーフィンハスンとは、
five of them. Two of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, virtually like none of them. <laughs> I, I don't know. We'll play another clip when he's on a bad New York later. You know, at the end, oh, the end of the thing. He talks about the people involved in the, like his fellow guitarist Mike Rathke, Fred Mayer, or how do you pronounce his name? Yeah, That's Mayer. 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 Um, uh, uh, finding the right studio is on his lyrical concerns, writing and rewriting his lyrics. Talks about not being part of rock. Let's have a listen to this. This. <laughs> I decided I'm not part of pop music, so we know that. Maybe I'm not part of rock. I decided maybe, maybe that's what I should consider, that it's just Lou Reed music and it's over there. So we can avoid some of the other garbage that goes along with, with uh, the other stuff. Vicious. I'm sorry, I mean, that's garbage. It is rock music. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not, not buying this. But isn't that also the problem that she kind of it became art and then he's laboured under art his whole life and was probably quite miserable. Yeah. Whereas he used to write quite nice sounding pop songs with Velvet Underground and he probably would have, like, you know, he was writing songs in the 50s that were quite tuneful. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's a very good point. He talks about using Mo Tucker on the album, which is actually nice. And there is a bit, towards the end, he kind of warms up because he's talking about Andy Warhol and John Cale and he's just writing songs for at that time yeah. so in, that, in that process so you know it's, it's great if you can deal with him speaking <laughs> very I, slowly I have to say I, I love Lou Reed I really do I, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan and I do think he was a great artist mm. and I think the New York album was really one of the best things he ever did I mean he'd made some interesting music did it sound good mm. sounded fantastic the guitars sounded good they mm. sounded wonderful they really did I think it's worth sounding you can really tell which studio they were recording yeah absolutely yeah. I mean it is, it is a, I mean Lou is one of those people who's just intertwined with New York City you yeah. can't mm. really you can't really take his music away from New York and I do think it is I mean actually it's a very compassionate album about about people who really are on the mm. wild side of, you know who 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 are, who are not faring well in Reagan's America mm. and you know Lou for all his faults did have a heart and 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 some of those songs are I think very very tender yeah. just yeah. as the songs on songs for Drella well, are very tender yeah. as well. I think the thing with him is when you hear how grotesque his upbringing was, yes yeah I mean yeah. really grotesque yeah. absolutely but it's a miracle that he could bet smile at anyone yeah. you know I mean yeah. it, it's really something and also that that you know the fact that that he was he ended up married to Laurie Anderson yeah who's a lovely woman by yeah. all accounts so there must be a really lovely side to Lou yeah. he's yeah. not going to show it to British church <laughs> yeah. no, no, no it's just that isn't it because there is great tenderness in the music the yeah. music the, the way he does the writes melodies is warm yes they're warm tuneful beautiful songs a lot of them and then you think well this contrast with the way he put himself out to the press yes that's yeah. where it all is really and yes. you know that's I suppose that's yeah. psychologically what he didn't enjoy was that that process of being exposed yeah. by people. So he got in first and tried to bamboozle well, them. One contradiction I find is that he goes in about good guitar sounds, yet he wrecked the guitar sound of, I think, one of the best guitarists that ever come out of New York, Robert Quine, who was with Lou's band for a long time. Yeah, sounded on... like Mark fucking Knopfler. 
you know, uh, and Robert Quine, you listen to him on the Voidoids, it's just electrifying. Yeah, good fantastic guitar play. Play. And, I uh, think there is good stuff on, on like, uh, is it the Blue Mask he's on, I think? There's some, there is some great playing by mm. Quine. How did you feel, though, if, you know, liking him as much as you do, how did you feel interviewing him and getting that treatment? I was just sort of terrified. Yeah. I mean, already, you know, it wasn't like I wasn't forewarned. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And But by the end of it, I was, oh, I can't even remember, even before the interview started, I was just sat in the kind of waiting room. And at one point, he just came in and just walked around. <laughs> Didn't say hello or anything. It was like, oh my this god, before. this is just yeah. yeah. Before the interview even started, it was just he was just kind Crowling. of oh, he was just did it put you off at all? Me out, did, you know? did, did you manage to separate your experience of him when you listened to him from that from the, from the time you interviewed him? I thought, yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, I I've got a lot of time for a lot of his a lot of his music. I have to say, I think he was kind of brilliant. I mean, yeah, obviously yeah, the me Velvets too. were brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we only got one other Lou audio on yep. the site. So I was really pleased to get an, a, another one, you know. Sure. I lost the tape of my of mm. that interview, which I, I, it was it was one of the best interviews I've ever done. Really? Once he'd stopped talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, amplifiers. <gasps> you know, he <laughs> was it. really fascinating. Uh, yeah. He was really, really interesting. I mean, we got the text. Well, you know, he clearly is. And he's a super bright guy yeah. as well, you yeah. know. All of that. Yeah. But he's still deeply unpleasant. You know? <laughs> deeply unpleasant. Someone... Someone who took a positive pleasure in making, yeah. <laughs> uh, particularly British interviewers, unless I've laboured that point, um, feel very, very small. Possibly, I think it's tilted. <laughs> <laughs> we should go and talk about another deeply unpleasant person. Morrissey! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Kate, that your episode is basically about a lot of deeply Bastards unpleasant men. Yeah, but... I just thought the, the featured artist in a sense, well, it's kind of Johnny Marr slash The Smiths. And this prompted somewhat by last week's open Incredible letter from open Morrissey. Letter. Because Johnny <laughs> had done an interview in Uncut. Where, I mean, I actually haven't, haven't read the interview, but Johnny, I mean, this incredible letter where Morrissey says, can you stop using me as clickbait? <laughs> I mean, Johnny... It, it really has been the things that Johnny Marr could have said about Morrissey, right? Yeah. And he, he's never said anything very unpleasant no. about it. Just like, we don't talk anymore. Yeah. Could you stop using me? Anyway, Kate, what is your what, <laughs> your thoughts on... I mean, just should we go back to the Smiths? Yeah. Can we agree the Smiths were great? Did you love the Smiths? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And this, and this latest outburst from Morrissey just reminds me of a couple I know who've recently broken up, but they're still both on Facebook broadcasting at each other oh, indirectly. Horrible. Stop <laughs> writing about me. Stop this. Yes, this, this yes, yes. But there's something so hysterical about it. And so, I mean, it's mad, isn't it? Our, our time together was very short and very long ago. Yes, <laughs> yes. You don't know me. You don't you know, know me. Yeah, I mean, this is incredible. I mean, he is... Trying to find you've got to laugh. He goes, can you not just leave it at that? Must you persistently, year after year, decade after decade, blame me for everything? <laughs> From the from the 2007 Solomon Islands tsunami to the dribble on your grandma's chin. What? I mean, what the Jesus. fuck? <laughs> right, that is. It's absolutely yeah. You 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 know nothing of my life yet. You talk as if you're my personal psychiatrist. It's like the, the thing that, as a journalist, to, to me that that really stuck out here is that 
Ma never wants to talk about Morrissey. Every journalist who goes to interview him is plugging away. Whatever new yes. project Ma has to, to think, yes. the Morrissey comes in at the end yes. and Ma goes, Yeah, all right. Okay. And yes. then he comes out with something like, um, Oh, when I was remastering the, the our collected works, I emailed the whole band and said it sounds wonderful and he never wrote back. Yes. Like, he's only answering a question that he doesn't want to be asked. In yes. 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 So this kind of feverish idea that he's like, you know, somehow talking Can't about. Stop him. talking about. He doesn't about want Morrissey. to talk about. It's him. insane. Yeah. I just I think it's quite a low blow as well because it, it will actually, you know, because Mar doesn't want to ever talk about Morrissey, it, it's kind of the worst thing that Morrissey could pick up on, on him doing. The narcissistic doing. wound in Morrissey <laughs> is amazing, open. It? Let's it's just, incredible. Let's just say that. I mean, what an extraordinary story, really. The, the severed alliances, the late Johnny Rogan called it between, between Mar and Morrissey. I mean, I. I, I where do you start with Morrissey? I mean, the Smiths were an extraordinary band, made some of the greatest music in that decade. He's one of the great, you know, greatest lyricists, the most compelling front men mm. that we've ever produced. And and so, so in a sense, so there's two Johnny Marr interviews, and we've also added uh, the late Delhi De- Fidelis piece, Caucasian Rut, yeah, from 1992, where he basically takes Morrissey to task for, for his... Let's just call it at that point racist flirtation. That was, Flat that, gate, that was wasn't after, it? Just the, after the, madness, the madness show, yes. Yeah. Where he wrapped himself in the, in yeah. the Union yeah. Jack, and, and piece. it's a fantastic mm. piece. And you know, and then he just he just itemizes the case for the prosecution. Do you yes, know what I mean? It's yeah. like going back to Panic by the Smiths, you know, yeah. hang the DJ and all of that. And Bengal in platforms, yeah, and all that sort yeah. of stuff. I mean, know. he says he's, he early in the piece. He says, you know, he talks about Morris's gradual metamorphosis from a miserable, loveless outsider with a sense of humour to a miserable, loveless outsider who flirts with racist imagery. Mm, And mm. that's kind of the trajectory. I mean, how did we we get to this point with Morrissey overtly racist, Mm. overtly nationalistic, overtly xenophobic? He he represents an English type. He says says as well, he just likes that... I don't think Morrissey is a racist. He just likes the trappings and the culture that surround the outsider element. He has some racist friends, and if he carries on this way, he'll have thousands more. (laughs) Which is so prescient, isn't (laughs) it? 1992, which is what? uh, My maths is never my strong point. How many many decades? It's exactly 20 years, isn't it? Uh, it, No, it's 30 years. 30 years? Yeah, your mouth, your mouth too. This happens to me all the time. Yeah. Yeah. To my, my advanced yeah. age. Jasper says, no, actually, that's fifty years. Yeah. <laughs> and but you, you a, are very well, old. Well, when you said when you were in our offices, it was much further ago than I remembered it because in my, my old age, you can press time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you came like that a couple of weeks ago, didn't you? Okay. <laughs> But I loved, by, by contrast, the, one of the, the Andrew Muller piece that you, you're going to put out this week. Mars quote on splitting up, I just thought, was, was so refreshing. He goes, I'm really sorry that a pop group split up, but I'm still here, and at the risk of repeating myself, there are a lot of people who'd rather have seen me die. That sounds incredibly dramatic, but it's true. People would rather have seen the band end with this myth, some mm. guitar hero lying dead in a pool. That would have been a nice, neat end to it. These days, people don't just kill themselves for a pop group. It's just stupid. I've got no respect for Brian Jones, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, because all those fuckers are dead. (laughs) (laughs) The kind of clarity of just, like, a pop group split up. (laughs) The idea that they were so hated. He was so hated for leaving. Completely. I mean, I I think Johnny... Johnny Ma, I think, is a, a wholly admirable human being. Especially because really he, he likes Rock's Back Pages. And he, <laughs> he, he said very kind things, kind things about Rock's Back Pages. <laughs> I mean, one of those musicians who's not sort of too big to kind of credit 
you know, music journalism as, as an influence on, on him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, whereas, of course, Morrissey would just be utterly disdainful and yeah. like Lou Reed. Yeah. But, I, I, I mean, reading those old Johnny Marr interviews, I just think he's so articulate and so just kind of honest and un, mm. un, sort of unself-regarding in the way he talks about the Smiths and about his own, his own post-Smiths mm. career. Um, describes himself as an accompanist. As an accompanist. <laughs> as an accom- Exactly. That's good. Yeah. yeah. I like I mean, that. He has a new album coming out in a couple of weeks, but then this whole thing blew up last mm. week. And, what was uh, the purpose of that, really? In, you know, in, in cold terms for Morrissey, why would he do that? Do you think it is just a fit of he's a craziness? Or is it, is it think, about think, the album? And I think, to... No, I think he's a stirrer. He just can't resist any attempt to kind of like wind people up that he had previously had dealings with. I, you know, I think it's, it's points to the unpleasant side of his sort of narcissism. I think it's, yeah. it's always a danger when, when you talk about outsiders earlier. Like, there is a danger if someone is outside something that they then start trying to kind of solidify that status and, mm. and, it, and it becomes a looking down on from this yeah. perceived yeah. superiority. Yeah. And I Do think, you think his, living, his not living in England for a long time now has had some part of this? That it's actually kind of... A, his little England sort of attitudes mm. have become stoked by the fact he's Los Angeles residence. Yes. Is that he's, right? Yeah. I think he's still based in yeah. LA, which seems the, the weirdest. You know, thing. When you think about the Smiths, yeah. the, the, the idea he should he be would in Cheshire. Have, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, everyone's had some kind of legal run-in with him, and at Word we had one. And I just remember the magazine came out on a Thursday, and somehow, I mean, literally, it was six in the morning in Los Angeles when he had seen the copy. So how does that happen? He's in presumably he's in his kind of gated community in Los Angeles. How does he know that word? Where does he get Word magazine from at six a.m.? Does he have someone, someone on the ground here? The who's faxing was this people? David Quantic? Yeah, this was yeah, Quantic's yeah. piece. Yeah, yeah, and that's and he was talking about paying lip service to racist causes. That was the phrase at the time, right. and it was. And he big, sued the word. Didn't he? he threatened to sue, and, yeah, and it sort of yeah, I think it was thrown out in the end. But um, we just, I just the practicality of like how you know. How many spies does he have? Why is he so angry that he's stalking around his mansion waiting for Word magazine to come out with a review? It's just a review, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's very much here, even though he's there. Kind of thing, so. I mean, I, I, I wrote the first cover story on the Smiths and I interviewed Morrissey and then went to... They were about to re- do the top, top of the Pops for the first time yeah. and, and sat down with Johnny and liked Johnny immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, really did not like Morrissey. We found him fascinating. Yeah. And he was such an unlikely pop star and had a brilliant mind and a very, very novel way of looking at pop culture. And it just, it was, he was a fascinating mm. person to talk to. But the the guy that we sort of know now in terms of what, you know, what he says and, and what he does, you know, was, was there. Has anyone really, read any of his pleasant. books? Have you read any of his I books? I know that he didn't use any... Paragraph breaks. Oh God! Oh, God. <laughs> that's, that's my idea. That's like Reed talking about amplifiers <laughs> yeah. for fifteen minutes. Well, the other that he insisted that his first book be published as a Penguin, Penguin classic. classic. Yes, yeah, yeah. I remember. And go his way. That was and that, that was just so offensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first half of that was, I thought, rather brilliant. Every when he wrote about Manchester, the Manchester of his childhood yeah. and his adolescence. Yeah. It, it was really good writing. Yeah, yeah. And, then the, and then the second half is everything we're talking about. Him just whinging mm. on and on and on about, you know, Andy Rourke and Mike Joyce. I mean, yeah. this interminable account yeah. of that that lawsuit being in the high so court. Boring. <laughs> oh, my God. You know. But um, the interesting thing in the Dave Simpson, so the Dave Simpson piece from 2013, where he sort of looks back, and I think this is when Johnny 
is actually finally releasing his first solo album um, a long time after the, the Smiths ended. And Andrew actually asked him, when you called that meeting, that crisis meeting with the Smiths, did you know you'd come out of it a, sort, a former Smith? And Johnny says, in all honesty, I don't think I did. We just needed a reset to do things differently. Oh, wow. two, two weeks holiday might have been nice. <laughs> I mean, which is so bizarre. It makes you get a parallel universe. Yeah. The Smiths didn't break up. They yeah, kind yeah, of carried yeah. on. Yeah. It's like when George been? goes off and get back and they manage to get <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> days right. later. Yeah. Persuaded. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. Anyway, so, I mean, I, the only thing, like, I would, the last thing I would say about Johnny is, I mean, he's, he is kind of an accompanist and he's played with so many weirdly different people, hasn't he? I mean, he's mm. played with, you know, with with the Cribs, Burt Janch, Brian Ferry, Modest Mouse, The Pretend. Is I mean, le- he's sort yeah. of... And electronic and all that. Sort of. Yeah, an electronic, yeah. electronic. Actor, hasn't he? Yeah. All the projects are, are interesting. He could do a lot more. He selects them properly. He doesn't do mainstream things. Yes. And sort of it's, so yeah. that's the only thing I would say in Morris's defence and the last thing I want to ever do is defend Morrissey frankly but Johnny on his own his own solo music it's not very interesting it just it just lacks that crucial sort no, of dimension well, I, yeah. I don't like Morris's solo stuff and after a reasonably promising start went kind of right downhill in a hurry they're a classic example of people who needed each they did, other mm. so, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. And, you, and you break up that partnership not, you know, the Beatles are the same mm. you yeah. break up the partnership and nothing's as good again but their time together was so short and so long <laughs> ago know, it's true. I know, I know so I know. short so long exactly absolutely right I know it's over and it never really began but in my heart it was so 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 that's that's the main feature and and um, in a minute we'll just we'll go on to highlights of the kind of pieces that go into the library but i think we just need to say goodbye to norma waterson a giant figure in this, in the story of british folk music we're adding this 1996 interview that mark cooper did for the daily telegraph with with norma when her first solo album came out it's a lovely piece actually and it just recaps on the story of the Watersons, who were one of the great family folk singing groups. They came out of Yorkshire and she married Martin Carthy. And there's a real dynasty there. Liza Carthy is their daughter, etc. And it talks about this show that the Watersons did on a um, tour in America. And they played McCabe's in Santa Monica. And the record producer, John Chelu, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, heard her singing, There is a Fountain in Christ's Blood. And, and asked her to make a solo album. And so that came out in, in 1996. It's just come out. And then Mark also talks to Martin Carthy and Eliza. And um, what comes out of that is Norma's the sort of matriarch, really. But she's always, at, in paradoxically, never kind of pushed herself forward. And she had to be really pushed to do this mm. solo album. Norma's always been, this is Martin saying, Mar- Norma's always been at the centre of things, both in her family and in the family singing groups. According to her, this is what's made her shy about coming forward. Right. <laughs> and then Eliza says, you know, when she's on stage, mum loses all her fear. She's alive. She waves her arms about. She shines. I just stand there and do my job and I don't even have to look at her. I know she's there. So it's, it's a really nice piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I... It's not my kind of, it's not my thing, no. really, that kind of singing. I can respond to 
family groups mm. and the, those kind of strange like harmonies. Like <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't actually thinking about the Osmonds, but it's um, yeah. I mean, you, you I don't, Mark, you're not. I'm not. A massive well, fan I, I, of, I'm just not a massive folk fan. No, I'm afraid no. it really is as tediously simple. I mean, I like the elements of folk rock and so on. So I mean, we love Sandy Denny, don't and we? we because, love Sandy Denny because somehow that voice is a bit closer to kind of rock, rock and pop singing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I find all that sort of finger and ear stuff sort of. It's just like the jazz rock all over again. I mean, I feel a bit so much Shirley Collins. I mean, I know lots of Jude Rogers are massive, like yeah. Shirley. I mean, there's a real cult of Shirley yeah. Collins, isn't there? But you've got to really kind of sign up for that that whole sort of world, don't you? Yeah, and, and spend your time in Cecil Sharp House. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> my favourite, my favourite uh, sort of traditional folk song I ever heard in Cecil Sharp House was the the one called Chicken on a Raft. <laughs> Do you know that? Chicken one? on a raft. Oh, oh, chicken on a raft. Yeah. Is that? <laughs> Am I hearing this right? But it is right, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Is also that the English folk is, in a sense, a slightly bogus construct because it virtually disappeared when Cecil Sharp started going around the country and right. writing stuff down. And he would rewrite songs and, right. and, get, and change lyrics and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And so the bedrock of English folk is actually slightly bogus. I quite like that. Are we going to get angry left? I hope so. What I like from um, what you're just saying about about Norma is that it seems to be one of the only genres that you you can be actually free of ego and be quite major in, like in terms of your standing. That it does. I mean, do you know Jackie Oates, for example? She's the the sister of Jim Moray and the very beautiful voice, very retiring, very successful. And you don't, I don't know quite how it doesn't hit them in the same way, the stardom, even if they're a sort of star yeah. within their own world. But yeah, you can yeah, you yeah. can be a normal person and I make that kind of performance of folk kind of encourages that, right? If everyone's yeah. sitting in a circle and you're just kind of, everything, everyone's putting it out. It's a yeah. collective thing, I think. Yes. Yeah, and, you're, and you're not doing your own material. Maybe that's something yeah. to do with it yes. as well. So you're kind of, it's a legacy thing, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah. passing it on yeah. rather yeah. than this is I my mean, song. There are folk voices that I really love. And June Tabor, I think, is it? Has a, just a gorgeous voice, mm. and in terms of Americans, I, think, I mean Judy Collins is a, is, a, is a beautiful singer. Yeah, I mean obviously you know jo- Joni kind of started as a, a folk singer, but I don't think of her in quite in that context. No, but I, I but yeah. the Judy Collins stuff in the sixties is is pretty fantastic. Mm. Anyway, so I like folk best when it's live, when it's there, when you can mm. when yeah. you can yeah. feel that sense of community I think that for me it then means the most I, I struggle mm. to listen to it on record a lot of the time because yeah. it, it's your divorce I just wish shut up when I'm trying to have my bloody pint in the pub and there's four blokes <laughs> in the fucking corner just ruining it it's all everything. about your pint it is all about my pint <laughs> I like to rise when the sun she rises early in the morning I like to hear them small birds singing Right, on that note, <laughs> can you tell us what you've added to the RBP library? And please, Kate, just jump in if Mark's talking about someone you... I've got a story, please, sir. <laughs> yeah. I probably have yeah. no stories now. <laughs> well, I, well, I suspect you won't have a story about our first half. This is um, Maureen Cleveland the Standard in 1962 interviewing Sam Cooke. Now, this is gold dust. Mm. There are so few Sam Cooke interviews. Yes. You know, right across the British and American press, because... Black artists weren't interviewed in those days. Mm. Uh, well, in the black press, they were. Well, but, well, yeah, but, yeah, but even then, they didn't. Black press, yeah. very interesting. They did not tend to talk about pop music because they right. saw themselves as elevating the black community above the street. Yeah. Yes. And so they weren't really interested. I mean, you got 
writing in things like Jet magazine and so on and so forth, but the black newspapers, yeah. and every major city in America had a black newspaper yeah. in the 40s, yeah. 50s, 60s. They didn't really want to talk about pop music, oh, you know. But this yeah. is a terrific. Release. This is great. This is great. Maureen Cleave, who we talked about earlier, was just a door, and he says things like, "Nobody tries to be an individual anymore." Now I try. I dress wham. <laughs> <laughs> Long before George Michael. Yeah, and, and listen, I'm always different from the current fad. They wear long jackets, I wear short. They wear narrow <laughs> lapels, I wear wide. I, say, so I just, I just love it. And then he says, I'm interested in the business of how man evolved and I try to read everything that enlightens me. So transparent, I love it. <laughs> just that this is how I'm, this is what I'm thinking. This is how I'm making myself. It's, it's, it's so refreshing. about John Brain. The, the, the English yes, novelist. I, I know. He's been reading the latest novel by John <laughs> yes. Brain. I mean, uh, you know, I, I found that I love it. Extraordinary. I, I, I love it. You know, and Maureen Cleave is so good at getting this stuff out. Yes. Mm. You know, we're talking about. Uh, another one, Maureen uh, O'Grady, who you're a fan of, the <laughs> capes very much. And Scott Walker, this is, I mean, I've got so many quotes, and I'll try and sing it down. He says, I want to sing honest songs in a primitive way. After all, I think I'm primitive. I don't <laughs> want an image. What year was this? This was 67 for Rave. Oh, yeah. Just after he'd left the brothers and was looked. I want to sing about experiences of human life. I can't really be happy, so I'm methodically sad. <gasps> That's great. <laughs> That's a good phrase. Uh, no, no, this is great. This is just fantastic stuff. I feel it's important to feel something, happy or sad. And I know it's my vocation to make people feel sad. Oh, wow. I'm interested in hypocrites, liars, debauchers, cowardice, drink. Prostitution. What are you saying? <laughs> See, no one talks like that anymore. No, no I know. I know. Totally yeah, Morally, Morrissey doesn't talk like this. <laughs> <laughs> I suffer from insomnia. I take sleeping pills. I drink a lot to relax and unwind. Mm. And lastly, flower power, I believe, is a lie. It would be lovely if it were real, but the human race is so complex, it just could never happen. He's right about he's that. He's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, is, this is fantastic stuff. Yeah, he never sort of got on board the kind of Carnaby Street trip, <laughs> Scott. You know, Do you, are, you, are you a Scott Walker fan? Well, I've always seen him in the same light as Lou, you see, ah. in a very um, un, unfounded way. <laughs> I just have found them both a little bit um, put off by the huge aura of vibrating cool that yes. surrounds both of them. And so I've never gone into the music because that hits me first. I think, like, oh, I should like them, therefore, you know. Yeah. This is your book, Kate. I know, it's terrible. Why, <laughs> this is your why, book? I, why isn't it short-sighted? Why are you proposal by the time you leave this office? But I think, you know, the problem is if I met either of those guys, I'd probably end up... Well, I'm, Lou's dead now, but... You can't interview them for this You meet book, them but... and you like them. I always like everyone I meet, so I can't really... But yeah, I just think he's he's an art project as well in a way he was yeah. made into oh, an art project sure. by his fans as well and yes. and i think that's kind of it's put well, me off slightly it, but, but also there was something very self-conscious about him and his approach yeah. to all of that sort of stuff he knew it was doing i mean we should really talk to keith Oldham, who's very close uh, closely involved with yes when you, book, book, when you do your book just the guy to talk to <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> um no I, but the other thing is do you like his voice i don't i've never i've loved never his liked voice. it no oh, okay but Maybe did, you shouldn't have you, did you interview Scott Walker? No, I never did. No, yeah, because no. I was wondering whether he felt like... I can remember being at NME when Scott came out, who'd been quiet for years and mm. years and years, and was this sort of, you know... Gillian Cope had done that Godlike Genius yes. compilation. Yeah. So he was already one of those one of those kind of cult figures. Mm. And, then he, and then he made Climate of Hunter in 1984, and Richard Cook, I remember coming to the office and saying... 
I'm going to do the interview. Yeah. No one else is allowed to do this interview. I have to do it. And then and it began, the sort of second wind. Yeah, yeah way, definitely. Yeah. I think him, him more than, than anyone almost that is sort of really labouring under this sort of aura of, uh, you know, being a godlike genius. And, and you, you play the Barbican and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah, when he, was, when he was one of the Wire's real kind of yeah, poster boys. Yeah, exactly. And that's it? hard work to be that person. <laughs> it wouldn't have been much fun. No, no Especially it's not, not if you were sad in 1967. No. You're still going to be sad in 2010. The little clocks stop ticking now. We're swallowed in the stomach room. So moving on to 1971, this is Ed McCormack, a writer we just got on board. The great, Ed uh, the great late yeah. um, Ed McCormack. Yeah. A very stylish writer for Rolling Stone. And um, he's hanging out with Steve Poole and Johnny Winter. Now, Steve Poole had just closed his club, the scene, which was like the New York in spot, and he becomes Johnny Winter's manager. And he says, Steve, the ringmaster, comes out first in blue velvet shirt and slacks, his curly shoulder length locked, dangling out of a blue Borsellino hat he picked up in Frisco. <laughs> and there's something vaguely evil looking about Boy Wonder <laughs> Steve Paul on this night of, jo- on this night of Jolly Winter's triumph at the film Nor East. There is some air of the well-fed young vampire and the set sneer of his thick purple lips in the glow of the streetlight. Fantastic. Riding the heels of his mentor's customised blue suede alligator-trimmed cowboy boots comes the great white hope himself, in fucking credible looking Johnny Winter, <laughs> the drained bloodless victim of Steve's vampire. His fine you long say that now. <laughs> his fine long silvery hair blowing silkily behind him, smiling his whimsical little stoned smile, his cross eyes like star crossed raisins gazing up from the flowery whiteness of an uncooked pie. <laughs> Johnny Winter is as frail as a little white wisp of a girl and he tiptoes and floats along in his black clothes and purple boots like a lost cellophane baggy blowing transparently away on a gusty wind. Wow. I mean... I love the sartorial detail. Oh, it's just... I mean, the sort of dandyishness mm, of, like, I love rock, that. rock stars. Now, McCormick's been sitting there just yeah. writing notes. Yeah. Everyone's getting stoned. I mean, that's the thing, but he also gets stoned with the people he, he's yeah. writing with, you know, he talks about that. Like, yeah. the, the, the yeah. Todd Rundgren interview we're going to be posting sort of this week or next week. Yeah. Anyway, it's fantastic stuff. You get very little physical description of people in, you know, the average kind of Guardian-style yeah. rock feature now. And I don't know whether it's um, because it's not right to talk about someone's appearance and you certainly yeah. can't kind of cartoonise someone. I think that's, I think that's absolutely yeah. right. It's frustrating. It's probably right. But, but, the, other, yeah. but the other thing, in 1971, you had to talk about people's appearance. Yeah. They look so outrageous. And people didn't yes. know what they looked like. So before, before denim ruled, this is, this is, the, this is people the, the, wore extraordinary clothes. I'm blue yeah. velvet. Yeah. And yeah. this is also only five years after people stopped wearing suits. Yes. You know, so yes. it's, it's a new thing to kind of really do a sartorial yeah. thing. You know? I remember meeting t- Tony Visconti once, and he, and he said, he said, I, I came to London as an American in about probably 67. He said, it basically was just like walking onto the set of Austin Powers. Fantastic. <laughs> 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 uh, billboard, uh, Vernon Gibbs... <laughs> Interviewing, among others, Nona Hendrix. I mean, she just comes up with some great stuff. But I love this. There are lots of things in life more exciting than the number one record, sex included. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, so this week, again, more in Cleve, interviewing the fabulous Vicky Wickham, who is one of our writers, um, mm. 
who we've had on the podcast, who was one of the leaders of Ready Steady Go when it was going. Well, well, she, was, she, she was the producer, was she? She, she was. was the producer. Uh, I mean, Vic is slightly come down on her appearance. She says she was in the world of skinny little mods with their flapping elbows, wary eyes and thin shoulders, utterly and entirely out of place. <laughs> She's basically says in this that Vicky's a bit of a dump. <laughs> Which I think is a little bit unfair. But, but anyway, she, she, the, the quotes are great. She says, I feel slightly embarrassed about liking pop at my age. If I go to a shop and ask for fabulous, people look at me. <laughs> and, and she says, this is great. If you're seen with a boy, they ultimately think you're sleeping around. If you're seen with a girl, they think you're bent. You can't win. This is great. 1965, yeah. an evening standard. This is fantastic yeah. stuff. Yeah, and she was, of course quote-unquote, bent. I mean, she was a gay woman. <laughs> yeah. And everyone knew, because she talked about this yeah. when she was on the podcast. Yeah. But she was, but, she, know, everyone knew she was gay, but it was never, never reported. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, she wasn't ticky out. And she didn't really regard her sexuality as being important to her life at that time. Mm. She was no. more into what yeah. she was doing. Um, she says, pop singers are instant. They've got nothing mapped out, no clocks or watches. That's why I love them. Mm. So that's, that's, that's great stuff. Mm. Um, let me see. Oh, there's a Pete Johnson reviewing the animals in the LA Times in 67. says, Burden's past successes apparently have deluded him into thinking he's a person of many talents, which he is not. <laughs> 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 which he is not. Uh, <laughs> Black Sabbath, uh, uh, Tony Iommi to Iommi to Roy Khan, Enemy of the 70s. We want to excite our audiences. But only with our music, which is mainly based on simple riffs and a heavy beat. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, this is the Ed McCormack's this, this, this week going into Todd Rundgren interview I just alluded to. It says, the band has this image being real natural and easy about their music, expert musicianship and all that. They're really just the opposite, real slow and unconfident about everything. Because <laughs> he had just produced Stage Fright. Oh, cause, sorry, I, I, I forgot you're talking about the, the band. The yes, band, the band. Of course, the band, the band. The band, a band called The Band. The band. I remember this piece, reading it, when I when I uh, did, did a big Todd piece for Mojo, and it's a fantastic piece. It's, it's, it's really good. Because I mean, what I like about Ed McCormick is he's right in the middle of that whole mm. scene. I mean, he really was going to Max's every night yeah. and Todd would be in the back booth with yeah, Patsy yeah. Smith or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so Ed, well, Ed's Pat, got a... Patsy Smith, is, he interviews Patsy Smith for this piece. Oh, for the piece, there and you go. And it's 1972. Yeah. So maybe Before anyone he, knew Patsy yeah, was. Well, really? exactly. yeah, yeah. She'd, already, she'd written a couple of pieces for Cream around that time she, and was she, getting reputation as a poet in New York. Yeah. Correct. She wrote a piece about the band for Circus magazine. That's right. Yeah. He also says, um, I'm probably the whitest singer in the world. There's actually no ethnic blues sound in my voice. I would dispute that, given the number of like soul songs Todd has has done. You know, he's very influenced by like Philly soul. Yeah. Well, he does. So, kind so it's a bit weird the, that he would yeah, say that. Yeah, and I think in the piece, I seem to remember that he does talk about that. that yeah, he can do mm. he can do this falsetto. He does a great. Yeah, I think he's a great um, soul falsetto. He says, "I can't stand to think that there's anybody anywhere getting more attention than me for doing <laughs> the same thing I do." See, this is perfect example. The stuff that you read out, I don't know whether it's just your choices, but there's <laughs> something so honest about so many of the quotes that you you see in stuff that was written like. 20, yeah, 30 years ago and it's I, I don't know what it is whether it's just people weren't quite so it's no, nowadays it seems to be all about self-promotion of the album or the concept of who I am as a pop star or the issue that I'm attached yes. to whereas there's a lot more sort of standing back and going 
I don't know why I'm so popular, because to <laughs> yeah. be honest, I'm just I'm, like... <laughs> I, I think it's become for, formula, formalised and formalised. I was going to yeah, say formalised. Yes. You, you, you know, the, the, Very the, ritualistic the, the, and formalised. It's like when my niece was making records about ten years ago. Yeah. She knew exactly what she was going to say to yeah. people. You want people to have like to be thinking on their feet and responding on their yeah. feet. Yeah. And I think it's partly because someone like Ed McCormack was much he was sort of embedded and I think yeah. the great writers of that the late sixties and the seventies were kind of embedded in the scene. Mm. You know, there was less distance between Well absolutely them. Yeah. you hung out with the people you were interested in. Yeah. Yeah. But all, there's all, a great Dawn James piece about Cat Stevens when he's about twenty three and he's, he admits that, you know, I've had a hit and no one looks at me in the street. I can't work out what it takes to get recognised <laughs> yeah, yeah. because, you know, and he's that's, very lonely. He's on Carnaby Street. You wouldn't fantastic. say that now. No, but no. I might talk about their mental health, I suppose, now. So that's different, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah that is... This is really, this is sad putting this. Stephen Wells interviewing Janice Long for the enemy in 1988. Mm. Janice, of course, died a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Uh, I'm very soft spot of her because she, she booked my band for three... Radio One session yeah. back, back oh, in 87. Yeah. So, uh, she's, someone that, and she's just basically been sacked. She had a kid and was basically sacked for having a kid, <gasps> which is, you know, charming sort of stuff. Yeah. Someone at Radio One came up to me and asked me if I had any real interest in music. I mean, what can you say? I mean, uh, <gasps> Yeah, I work at Radio One. Is, is that not a sort of prerogative? <laughs> you know, it's desirable. I, I, you know, but it was shocking how badly treated she was, right. by the way. Yeah. Mm. You know. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so that's, that's, that's my lot for this week and last week. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mirison Bowie. Totally good. I'll just mention a couple of things first, which is Laura Barton's Heckler's Guide in The Guardian in 2006. <laughs> You see, I've been thinking quite a lot about glorious heckles this last week while trying to devise my plot to mildly annoy Tony Blair, the patron saint of dreary prime ministers, when he makes his farewell tour next year. I'm thinking if Tony wants to live it like a rock star, let Stangwell treat him like a rock star, though Bagsy not me manning the merch stand. <laughs> and so she categorises the different kinds of heckle that you can do. One, the insistent calls for the act's most well-known works. In the case of Tony, well, what do you remember him for? The war in Iraq? The 45-minute claim? The Hutton Inquiry, or perhaps we should pluck a number from the back catalogue. Tuition fees, for example. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to confess, my father recruited Tony Blair to the Labour Party. <laughs> All your and uh, he used to be invited round to my flat, and my mum was always trying to get them together with my sister, who couldn't have been less interested. Amazing. <laughs> 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 anyway, but the answer includes so I mean the, the other types of things so two the insistent calls the act's most obscure works three heckling something willfully obscure to attract the attention of the former and four arguably the most hollered four words at a gig any gig but especially you two gigs shut up and play <laughs> ah yes bingo these are four words I'd hurl at Blair as easily as Bono and their message is simple stop faffing about with your ego and do what you're paid to do stop clapping your fucking hands Tony and rule the country <laughs> so I thought that was uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yes, I yes. thought that was quite a, a, a topical kind. Thank I can't God Tony Blair now, isn't but... Prime Minister anymore. Etc, <laughs> <laughs> etc. Et et <laughs> well, actually, yes. you know what? Yes. I'm reminded of him. <laughs> Listener, if you are listening in five years. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I love then, that. Um, new band of the day, Glass Animals. Paul Lester profiling them in The Guardian in 7th November 2013 because this week they were heralded as the biggest band in the world. Really? The, the whole world? Yeah, well, because they're like the top. They had the he most so streamed song. I've never heard of them. Well, they're clearly not <laughs> yeah, actually exactly. the biggest band in the world. They just had that, the most streamed song on Spotify, and they're from Oxford, like a bunch of other bands, like, <laughs> like um, yeah, Radiohead yeah. and, and all that. But but no, it's a great it's a great profile because Paul Lester does this. You know, he's 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 really also good at. 
picking good bands for new yeah. band of the day. Yeah, you know, and absolutely. New bands of the day. How do you maintain that? I, like you start inventing them after a while. <laughs> <That's> brilliant. <laughs> yeah. he, was so, he was generally so on it, wasn't he? He really yeah. was. He always it. got famous. Can, <laughs> yeah. Can you briefly, for some of our more elderly listeners who, like Mark, have never heard of the biggest band in the world, just, just tell us what glass animals do. Well, so Paul <laughs> Lester describes them as. Actually, if feet is unfair, there is a certain prissy decorousness to some of their music, but mainly it's intelligent, inventive, and with a heartwarming tendency to incorporate R&B sonics. They're eccentric. Um, I hate them already. Yeah, you do. <laughs> They're into sonics. unicorns and slugs, and invited to some of the band in three words, they came up with Occult Bunny Lagoon. Ooh. What? What? The whole series of references has gone clear over my head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just... Kind of like They're kind of like... <laughs> They're kind of like electronic R and B kind of stonery, kind of drawn out kind of. Are you familiar I'm, I'm with not, their work? Not familiar with their work. <laughs> <laughs> but hang on, you're young. <laughs> <laughs> My taste is. Is that a cut-off point where you should know long? You, you don't have to know. You should rather listen to Chick Corea and return to forever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Return to return to forever. It's always been the problem. My worst <laughs> question. So, any new bands you're listening to? I, I know. I, I hate that question same. so much. Oh God, I know. That's what, that's what he's in this office for. <laughs> yes, yes. Snappy Jasper, Jasper, Jasper Newberg. Sorry, by the way, so I was pointing at Jasper when I said that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <in> confusion. <laughs> Lastly, Adele, a review of 25 by Holly Gleason in Paste magazine in 2015. And it's just an interesting review, and I thought I'd mention it because you're here and because it mentioned Skyfall, because that's what she just won an Oscar for at mm-hmm. the time. And you recently wrote a feature about why <laughs> Daniel Craig is a crap bond. <laughs> And I just, I read that and I loved it. And the music tie is he says he's watched Live and Let Die about 50 times, yeah. which is my absolute favourite yeah. film and has an, a phenomenally yeah. good soundtrack. They're like a circus, but yeah. uh, Roger Moore films, aren't they? Yeah, but it's great. So, um, Whereas but, I, yeah, I always think about the, the, the scene in Casino Royale. I do think that watching a Daniel Craig film is like having your balls whipped with a rope underneath. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's having such a miserable time being Bond, and thank God it's over because he's relieved. <laughs> There's a good take on Adele as well. The catch the tears, the ragged edge when the emotions strain everything, Adele's rafter-scraping alto is a portal not into, but actually out of the feelings she's working from. <laughs> That's good. Which is really That's a, very a good, good yeah. take on that. Did I you just... watch that ghastly TV special recently? Hell no. <laughs> I actually tried to watch it. Why? I watched I, it. I sort of felt, you kind of liked it. Yeah, I, I, I know, felt... I'm a fan. I'm, I'm unapologetically I'm so a fan. not a fan. Partly because her songs are so obvious. She basically says exactly what's happened. There's no <laughs> metaphor. There's no, 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 no. There's no language. We demand it's basically, metaphors. Basically, you left me and I'm fed up. And I'll be fed up until I stop being fed up because you've left me. You know. It's a, that's a song. That's a song. That's That's the best lyric I've heard all day. Oh, dear, oh, dear. So, that's my lot. Very good. That's great. Nice. Maybe for for listeners listening in ten years' time or twenties, and we should we should talk about Adele's forty five. Wait, should we talk about it now? Just like, imagine do a curveball and do a different kind well, of. Well, I was quite shocked when I realised that she's actually lying. They don't correspond to the release date oh. of the 
the year that she says she is old. Are you the only person who's realised this? <laughs> well, no, I, obviously, I mean, obviously she starts writing them at some point yeah. and then picks the age that she likes most or sounds best yeah. or whatever. Yeah, but they don't... I, I looked at the release dates and they don't actually track with her really? age. Unless she's got some secret anti-aging scene. <laughs> yeah, Adele. You're busted, Adele. Time, time travel or yeah, something, something like that. that. Do, you, do you loathe Adele? Um, I'm not you... keen. Okay. Um, for that sort of reason, I found it. I find it slightly overbearing, the yeah. delivery. And, yeah, I'm not too keen on the trans... I don't know, I found a couple of songs off the new one explaining the, the process of the divorce to a small child quite un- <laughs> upsetting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're supposed. I'm supposed to be upset by it, but I was just like, oh god. It reminded me a bit of um, like Rufus is a tit man, and the idea of like you grow up and you have to listen to that yeah. as yeah, an yeah, adult yeah. that this yeah. was written about you when you were kind of unable to answer for yourself and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah, I know that's. No, I, actually, I like the Rufus has kind of swerved that issue by clearly not being a tit man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I interviewed Rufus in New York once and saw him play... We are talking about ba- Rufus Bowery Bowery right, by the way. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. yeah, exactly, not the band. And um, he introduced... He did a little preamble to the song and and um, and he said... Uh, yeah, Dad, Dad said he was a tit man and, and he went in a very camp voice, uh, think a little lower down, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what And then I think I interviewed him the next morning and he was still quite debauched at that yeah. point, Rufus. And and I went and I sat in his hotel room and he kind of entered from the bedroom wearing a, a Moroccan jellaba. Looking like he hadn't slept for like two days and sort of draped himself on the sofa and it was like well, how are you, Rufus? <laughs> uh, I love Rufus Wade. Yeah. But he's become very respectable, weirdly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. he does kind of, you know, he sort of plays the Albert Hall with orchestras and yeah, things. Definitely, and so yeah. all his kind of crystal meth years are sort of just <laughs> long gone. I was a big fan of Martha and that amazing yeah, album. What was that brilliant record? With, with an expletive title. Was this? That was the that was her answer to the uh, to yes. Loudon, wasn't it? Bloody yes. bloody motherfucking asshole. Maybe Adele's son will be No, it's a strange comparison to make, but there's something about the like yeah. writing about to a kid when the kid can't answer back. Oh. It's like, ah! <laughs> I'm just scrolling. You know, Barney, you and I can reach our advanced age. Is <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, Loudon Wainwright's third album was a big album when I was at boarding school in like 1970, sure. 71, 72. That was a record. And then the first McGargles album, I absolutely oh. adored. I, mean, oh. I still love that record. Yeah, you know? me too. And you know, all these years later, they're kind of the offsprings. The yeah. offspring. I know. You know I using know. bad language in their song titles. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. I think we're done. I think we're done. Oh my. Listen, it's been wonderful. It's been fantastic. It's been a lot of fun. Thank gas. you very much. It's been a gas. It's nice to meet humans in a room. <laughs> yeah. 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 How about that? Yeah. yeah. And then there's Mark and Barney. You're barely, barely alive. Yeah. Yeah. But it's huge um, fun. Huge yeah. fun. Yeah. Thanks very much so for having me. That was good, good fun, yeah. And So we will be back in a couple of weeks. With Peter Garalmick on Zoom wow. from, I, I'm guessing, like Massachusetts, where I, bet, I think he still lives. Jesus so. Christ, I've been a yeah, but bone up on Garalmick. <laughs> well, 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 uh, having read this, but everything is written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Martin Collier will be joining us for that, and oh, so fantastic. We'll, look, we'll look forward to that. That's it. We're going to go um, out You're with... going to talk us out? Yeah, well, we're just going to go out with another clip of Lou Reed speaking very slowly <laughs> about New York City. <laughs> 
I can't get too much of that. Well, you know, it's it's just like a person, except it's a city. <laughs> Something along those lines. Exactly. Oh, well, listen, brilliant. Thanks again, Kate. Thanks very much. And we'll say goodbye. Bye. That um, the uh, city has gone to, uh, to where it, it it has. I mean, in 1989, that it's actually turned out. I don't know if I'm surprised. With eight years of Reagan, you could have predicted this. But, but the people voted Reagan back. So yes, they did. So they carried on. Make a very bad mistake because we are—I mean, there's so much in the crime, unemployment, and the homelessness side of it. I mean, I was there in in October, and I just couldn't really believe how much sort of homelessness. It's beyond belief. I mean, if people think I'm kidding on this album, no. I'm not kidding. It's terrible. It's very sad. Very sad. New York City man, you just say go and that is it. I'm a New York City man, you just say go and that is that. That was Lou Reed in conversation with Martin Aston in 1989, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Kate Mossman. Find her writing in the New Statesman as well as on RBP. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. The skipper's in the wardroom drinking gin. Aye, old chicken on a rock. I don't mind a knocking, but I ain't a going in. Aye, old chicken on a rock. The gym is a laughing like a drain. Aye, old chicken on a rock. Be looking in me comic cuts again. Aye, old chicken on a rock. Turn the chicken on a raft on a Monday morning. Oh, what a terrible sight to see.